Our scripture today comes from Exodus and in Galatians. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness in Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while, God, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And in Galatians, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that for if the law had been given that would give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is God's word. Thank you, Heather. Uh, good morning. So good to see so many of you. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, during the Advent season, we are telling a story uh, about the coming of the one that we celebrate at Christmas. And the reason we're telling a story is because the Bible really is... You could say one big story, and all of the individual stories of the Bible make one big capital S story, and so we are hitting some of the highlights of that story in the Old Testament as it relates to the themes that we're celebrating in Advent as we come closer to the coming of the Christ at Christmas. So let's do a little bit of review so we can catch up to where we are, and then we'll look at these passages together this morning, okay? Uh, the story that we are telling begins all the way back at the beginning in the creation of the world. And you remember the first theme this Advent is creation. Uh, God made the man and the woman at the very beginning and put them in a garden, literally a paradise, the Bible says. And he gave them a job. They were to multiply and through successive generations to fill the earth and to bring the earth into subjection under their lordship under the lordship of God himself. They were to exercise dominion and to turn the rest of the world into the paradise of God. But instead of living in submission to him and following his rules, they were overtaken by evil and began to live selfishly. They coveted God's throne, the Bible says. That's pretty much uh, what, what the Bible means by those things. And wanted to rule in God's place. And this, the Bible says, is what's wrong with the world. That this is what's wrong with the world, that we are still doing this. 
that we are still seeking to live independently of Him, to decide for ourselves between right, right and wrong, to be wise without Him, to, be, to try to find a happiness apart from Him, and that we have ruined things in our rebellion and sin. But God, in His grace, in the middle of pronouncing curses upon the man and the woman because of their sin, if you remember there in Genesis chapter 3, He, he curses the serpent as well, and even the creation itself, but in the middle of those things, he makes a promise that one day there would be a child that would come, a seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, who was the cause of all the trouble to begin with, and he would have his heel bruised. And this child that was promised is the one who would come and who would renew all things and make everything sad come untrue. That's creation. Now, in the next scene, which we looked at last week, God comes to a man named Abraham, and he tells Abraham that Abraham and his descendants and the nation of people that would rise out of Abraham are going to be his instrument through which he's going to bring about all that he's promised back in Genesis chapter 3. That it would be Abraham and Abraham's children and his grandchildren and all of his descendants throughout all the generations that would be there and would be the funnel through which God would bring his salvation and blessing to the ends of the earth. And ultimately it was through Abraham and Abraham's descendants that the promised child, Messiah, who would finally conquer evil and undo it, uh, would come. So now, today, we see in the theme of today's candle and service and all the things that we're trying to meditate on is this theme of law. And so as Abraham's descendants grew in number and eventually became a nation of people, the people of Israel, as the story continues to unfold, right? God gave them the law through Moses, his rules and his statutes and his words. And it was the law that was to it was the expression of God's authority to govern their civic and corporate religious life together. So they were to be a people who lived under the law of God. They were to be a holy people, we read there in Exodus chapter 19. A holy nation, verse 6. A people who, in other words, that word, that, that, that idea of holiness is, they were, be, they were to be a people who belonged exclusively to God and lived their lives for the sake of His mission and in His will and not their own. And the law came through Moses to show them what that looked like. And so this morning we've got to talk about the law. But won't that be fun, right? And yet what I want us to see is that the law is just as much good news as anything else is. The law is part of the gospel. The giving of the law is a good thing. And so that's what we want to talk about. And we want to do it under three headings, and you'll see them in your outline there. We want to talk about the purpose of the law first. Secondly, the problem of the law from Galatians 3. And then we want to finish by looking at the person that the law points to. So there you go, three Ps. I figured it out this week. The purpose, the problem, and then the person. Maybe that will help you remember. So let's just start uh, with the purpose. And I've got work to do, I realize, because law, you know, the idea, the concept of law or rules or precepts that are to be obeyed is not something we usually consider a good thing. We typically think of law or rules as something bad and restrictive. Now, just an example, and this is a silly one, uh, but I think it's helpful. Um, And I probably am going to be shamed for even mentioning the fact that I was uh, looking at Facebook a couple of days ago. And uh, and can I just say, uh, Facebook is a wonderful insight into the human soul. I mean, you can't, it's funny that it's really meant to be a social networking device where you can kind of stay anonymous, but you can't hide, even on Facebook, because it, it gives you such a great glimpse into the heart of people and exposes idolatries. It's just amazing. 
Uh, and so I was on Facebook, and one of my friends, who was a girl that I went to high school with, uh, posted a few days ago, and this was just, just great, I thought. But here was her post. If you're driving, excuse me, if you're out shopping and driving I-4 to Lakeland, the cops have traps everywhere. Entrapment, I tell you. I hate them. That was her post. Right? And then, again, like four hours later, or maybe, I can't remember, but the same girl, another day, cops all over Havendale. Jeesh. Are they trying to break people at Christmas or what? Right? <laughs> I was thinking, holy smokes. Now, granted, and some of that, you know, and I love, my favorite is like emails or Facebook posts that are like all caps, all caps, like exclamation, exclamation, you know. I mean, just trying to put forth emotion through those things. But I thought, wait, think through that for just a minute. I mean, what's the problem? Police doing their job. Ugh, who wants police doing their job? Ugh. I mean, if you're speeding and breaking the law, I can understand you being upset with that. But the law is there for a reason, right? I mean, why, why does she express, I, mean, I hate him. I mean, why do we hate April 15th so much? Because we hate law. We hate, we hate the idea that there's somebody else who gets to tell us what to do. And that we have to abide by it. Now, I want you to contrast that with, Psalm 119, because the scriptures say that the law is glorious. And the psalmist in Psalm, if, if you've never read Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, 150 ver- or more than that, 180-something verses, I think. Uh, I want you just to listen to some highlights from Psalm 119 as the psalmist just meditates on the law of God. Just listen to this, okay? Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The, understand, the unfolding of your words give light and impart understanding. Now listen to this, Psalm 119, 129. I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. Psalm 119, 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoils. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Do you hear that? The psalmist praises God for the law. He's so, he says he's so thirsty for God's commands that he pants for them. He says that God's commands are sweeter to them than honey. He loves God's law. I mean, do you see how stark a contrast that is? And so we've got to ask two questions right here at this very beginning point. First, why is it that we hate the law so much? And secondly, why is it that we should love it as the psalmist does? So why do we hate it so much, and why should we love it? Those are two questions I want to answer in this first point. And I just want to ask this, why do we hate it so much? Now come with me to Exodus 19, and you'll see that first paragraph that we read together. Israel, let me set the stage for you, kind of where we are in the story of, 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 of Israel and Exodus, okay? At the beginning chapters of Exodus, Israel has become a, a mighty nation. They're very numerous, they're, but they're slaves in Egypt, and they're being... Brutalized and abused by their by their captors in Egypt, and so they cry out to God for deliverance, and He sends a man named Moses to rescue them by miraculous deeds from the nation of of Egypt, and they are coming out of Egypt and they're moving toward the land that He promised Abraham so many centuries ago in the very beginning chapters of the book of Genesis. But as God rescues them out of Egypt and He's taking them to the promised land, they make a pit stop. At Mount Sinai, and it's there 
at Mount Sinai that God is going to enter into this covenant um, relationship with them where he's going to establish himself as their God and establish them as his people. Exodus 19, that's what this is, this covenant ceremony. And if you know the Bible um, well, then you know that Exodus chapter 20, the very next chapter in Exodus is the giving of the Ten Commandments, which we read from Deuteronomy 5. And so... What's happening, get the big picture of what's happening here. This is, as Jonathan even said to us last week, this is very similar to what would have happened in that day between a conquering king and a lesser king or a kingdom, a suzerain vassal treaty where the conquering king or the one who had rescued the people or the one who had conquered the people would come and say, here is what I've done. Here is how I've conquered you. Here are all the good things that I promise now to do to you. I will be your king, and I will rule over you, and I will defend you, and I will protect you, and I will make sure nobody else comes in to harm you. But here's what you have to do for me. And there was a covenant that was cut between the conquering king and the lesser kingdom and people. And that's exactly what God is doing here with his people Israel. Look at verse 5 there in Exodus 19. God is saying to them, you, well, verse 4, you've seen what I did. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I've rescued you. I've delivered you. I have been powerful for you in your weakness, and I have put, you, I've put away the Egyptians from you. And then in verse 5, he says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So God says, here's what I've done. But now here's what I expect you to do. He expects obedience. Israel's to be obedient. So you see, salvation by grace doesn't make obedience irrelevant. Salvation is by grace, and we're going to see that even here in Exodus 19, but it doesn't make obedience irrelevant. It makes it necessary. And so Titus 2, 11 through 14. I just want to read these verses to you because I think they're helpful to see this. But in Titus 2, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. It's on the screen. That's cool. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So the grace of God has come. We're saved by grace. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave him for, our, for us to redeem us from the law, all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Look at this last phrase. Who are zealous for good works. So what's the consequence of salvation by grace? That we would be a people who think obedience is irrelevant? Or that we would be a people who are zealous for good works? You see, God is being revealed to us here and all over the scripture as a king. And part of what it means for him to come and save us is that he is going to subdue us to himself. And that's what the old catechisms teach consistently, that if you're not a Christian, or if you're new to Christianity, or if you're on your way to becoming a Christian, you, I want you to know this. If you invite Jesus into your life, he is coming into your life as a king who will subdue you. He's coming to conquer your heart. He's coming to overthrow sin, to overthrow you and to produce obedience in you to make you zealous for good works. That's why he's coming. And that's what the law does. That's what the law does. Because in the law, God is making his claim on us as his people. The law is the expression of his authority. It's meant to rule our conscience. It is God's words, his authoritative word coming into our life. And that's why we hate it. 
because we can't stand the idea that somebody else might get to tell us what to do. But if that's why we hate it, then why should we love it? Why does the psalmist sing, oh, how I love your law, how sweet are your words to my taste? You know, I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commands. Why? Why then? I mean, how do we get a heart like that? What do we need to see about the law that would cause us to think of it that way? Uh, NPR, this is my home run illustration for the day, okay? NPR ran a story recently about a number of studies that have been done over the past 100 years or so where subjects were blindfolded and then asked to walk in a straight line. Now, every time they failed. <laughs> and what happened was is they ended up walking around in circles. And so if you, if you blindfold somebody and ask them to walk in a straight line, it, is, it has been shown over the course of many, many years to be a complete impossibility. Now, one study in particular put people in a forest in Germany and asked them to walk in a straight line, okay? Now, here's, here's what this looks like. Here's the illustration of this, okay? This is the forest in Germany. If you see the red dots, that's the beginning point, the beginning place. Now, what they did is they ran the study on two different occasions, one when it was overcast and foggy, and there was no fixed point of reference. So there was no sun. There was no, you couldn't make out anything. It was, you were, it was just as if you were blindfolded. And they said, walk in a straight line. Now, those are the blue lines. Do you see the blue lines? How successful were those people? Not so much. And then what they did on another day when the sun was out, and you, could, and you know, if you've, ever been, if you've ever been hiking in the mountains or if you've ever been you know, in woods, and you can see kind of a peak of a mountain that comes up, and, you know, you get your bearings. You say, if I just keep heading in this direction, or you see the sun, okay, the sun's, I need to keep the sun on my right side, because if I keep the sun on my right side, then I'm pretty much walking in the same direction. And so they did the study on a second time on a day when the sun was out, and you could use it as a point of reference or see a mountain or some other fixed point, keep heading in that direction, and that's the yellow line. See what happened? Now here's the quote that I want you to read, I mean, that I want you to listen to. You keep that up there, Susan, for just a minute. Uh, this, this, this writer from, for NPR said, Humans apparently slip into circles when we can't see an external focal point like a mountaintop, a sun, or a moon. Without a corrective, our insides take over, and there's something inside of us that won't stay straight. Now, do you get the lesson? We need an external fixed point of reference. We need an external focus point that we can look at and keep heading in that direction, or what's going to happen is we're just going to start walking around and around in circles, and that's what the law of God is. It is the fixed reference point. It is the external focus point. It's the way to life and happiness and wholeness, and that's why we should love it. That's why the psalmist sings, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light and imparts understanding. Because you see, he knows. The psalmist knows that without God's commands, we'd be running around in circles blindfolded. We wouldn't know up from down or right from left or good from bad. But sin has so corrupted us, we're constantly drifting and getting turned around. And without God's commands, we'd be hopelessly lost. You see, we hate the law. Because we don't want to be ruled. We, want to, we don't want to be told what to do. But we miss that we need to be ruled. That the most loving thing God could do is to give us the law and to rule over us. Because you tell me, it's unloving and cruel for a parent to not teach their small children to not run out into oncoming traffic. Right? It's cruel and unloving for a parent to not say, don't touch the stove when it's hot. A two-year-old doesn't know enough to know not to do those things. They don't, they, 
They don't know enough to make up their own rules. And when God says, you shouldn't envy, have no other gods before me, honor your father and your mother, don't commit adultery, he's saying, don't run out into the road. And that's why the psalmist sings, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. It's sweeter to me than honey. I pant for it. Can I just, can I summarize that? God, I'd love for you to tell me what to do. (laughs) Because he knows that the commandments are the way to life and blessing and joy. C.S. Lewis tells a story about a schoolboy who asked what he thought, who was asked what he thought God was like. And here was his reply. The little boy said as far as he could make out, God was the, quote, quote, the sort of person who was always snooping around to see if anyone was enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. <laughs> right? And Lewis says that, how, how, that that's how we view rules or laws. That there's something that intrude or interfere or stop you from having a good time, and that's not true at all. It's not true at all. And when Jesus preaches his sermon on the mountain, Matthew 5. He's not trying to ruin people's lives. He's trying to show them how they can really begin to live the life of heaven and to find real joy and purpose and intimacy with God and communion with others. And those are the things we've been created for the most. So that's the purpose of the law. That's what the law is. It's the external focal point that keeps us from just going around in circles. It's the roadmap to abundant life. So, secondly, then why should we love it? And that's the second thing I want to mention here. Uh, excuse me, that's the law, and that's why we should love it. But there's a second thing that I want to say, and that is that there's a problem inherent in the law. And that's what Paul's getting at in Galatians 3. So if you come to Galatians 3, we're going to look in a little more detail at Galatians 3. And the problem that is going on, and you can put that off now, Susan, that's great. The problem in Galatians 3 is that Paul's writing to the Galatian church, and the Galatian church has been infiltrated by a group called the Judaizers, And the Judaizers are Jewish Christians who believe that in order to follow Jesus, you have to obey the law of God. So the Judaizers have come from Jerusalem, and they keep telling these new Christians, you have to be circumcised, you need to follow all the dietary laws, you've got to do all the things the law of God says so that you can be good Christians. That there's a law-keeping that leads to righteousness in life. Do you see that in Galatians 3.21? For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, that idea of righteousness, which we've talked a lot about, is this being in right relationship with God. It's, it's living with God's approval and love under his smile of everything being as it should be in your life. And the Judaizers believed it was the law and law-keeping that led to righteousness in life. It was, um, this is a silly illustration, but uh, it was kind of this elf-on-a-shelf mentality. You know this, Right? put an elf in your house and you kind of put him in different places and the kids don't know where he is and you tell him you better be good because he's reporting to Santa. (laughs) And Santa's got a list and he's checking it twice. And he knows who's been naughty and who's been nice. And if you're bad, you won't get anything for Christmas. I realize it's all in good fun, and I'm not trying to badmouth Santa. I, I'm pro-Santa, whatever. I don't, you know, if you rearrange the letters that spell Satan, I know all that, but I don't think there's no, there's no conspiracy. Satan's not some, you know, whatever. Okay, none of that. But I want you to see that's law. That's, that's, that's under the law, law-keeping. If you're good and you follow the rules, you'll get the reward. If you're bad, you won't. 
And that's completely opposite the gospel. The Judaizers had come into the church and were preaching what Paul calls another gospel, which is really no gospel. They were trying to take people back under the law. They wanted, they wanted, uh, you know, they wanted people to be under the Mosaic law, and that's what Paul's addressing in Galatians, and Galatians 3 in particular now, specifically. And this will help with where we've been in the last couple of weeks. Paul's describing the relationship of the law that came through Moses with the promise that was made to Abraham. Do you see that? Now, we've, this is what we've been talking about. So in the covenant he made with Abraham, God made some incredible promises both to Abraham's, Abraham and Abraham's descendants, Israel, and all of us. For example, go back up to Exodus 19, verse 5, to bless them, to prosper them, to make them a kingdom of priests. That, that phrase means that he was going to use Israel to bring his salvation to the whole earth. But the question became, and it's what Paul's addressing in Galatians 3, is what qualifies them to receive the promises? In other words, does God bless people because they're good and they deserve it, or is his blessing grace? Or to put it this way, does God relate to us as his people, this is what Paul's wrestling through, by law or by promise? That's Galatians 3.18. Is righteousness by law? Is it something you know, we work out for ourselves? Do we make ourselves righteous by obeying the law? Or is it by promise? Is it something God gives as a gift of grace to the undeserving? And the key to understand this um, is to understand the order that Paul says is happening here. And in Paul's thinking, look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says that promise always comes before law. Grace always comes before before law. And this is true chronologically. If you look there, God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham. He put his love on Abraham, promised to bless Abraham and to be his God and to, and to make him a blessing to all the nations. And then 430 years later, Paul says, verse 17, the law came through Moses. Now think of it this way. In Exodus 19, God has already delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's already saved them. He's already come in grace and rescued them from their captors. He's borne them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. He's brought them into relationship with himself by grace. And then he's going to give them the law. It's the same in Exodus 20. Or in Deuteronomy 5, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, look at how they start. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, who rescued you from the house of slavery. Let's establish that. You will have no other gods before me. Right? You see the, you see the order? It's not, law, it's not law, then grace. It's grace, then law. But it's never just one or the other. And that's what Paul's working through with the Galatians. That the Judaizers have infiltrated the church. And we're teaching that you had to be circumcised, you had to obey all these rules, and then, you know, on the other side of your obedience, on the other side of your obeying the law, then you were righteous. That was law, not promise. They had turned the law into a system of self-justification, into a way of achieving righteousness on your own. Taking people back under the law. And in case you're wondering if this is you, and this is just hopefully helpful, in case you're wondering if you do this, or if you're there, a couple of things to think about. The best way to find out, if you've done this as well, if you're still living under the law, if you're still one who kind of is law and, you know, I'm hoping for grace on the other side of law and the other side of my obedience, kind of a works righteousness system, the best way to find out is to ask other people. <laughs> because people who are using the law as a means of justification come across to other people as being, among other things, snobby and condescending. People who struggle won't feel comfortable around you. Be very intolerant of people who are different or to have different opinions than yours and 
probably you'll despise them or make fun of them. People who get the law and the gospel reversed and backwards are typically very driven to be successful in business or to get the best grade in school because at the same time they're very insecure and so they can't handle criticism. Here's a big one. Uh, If you're doing this, you won't be able to rejoice in the successes and the victories of others. Because it'll feel like it'll feel like a knock against you. There's a moral intensity, right? There's a seriousness about these people. They're not able to really have much fun or make fun of themselves or confess their sin. They value truth above relationships. And all of those are symptoms of the order being mixed up between the law of the gospel, gospel being backward in your thinking. So this is what happens when you take the law and you try to make it a method of self-justification. But Paul says it doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. It was never meant to be that. And the prob- that's the problem with the law. The problem with the law is it shows you what righteousness is. It puts righteousness and life on display for you, but it can't make you righteous. It can't give you life. The law, the scripture says, lacks the power to do that. It can, it can deal with sin on a superficial and external level, and that's it. But it can't change the heart. Now, just what, one example. Think of a relationship where there's conflict right now in your life. The law might be able to stop you from murdering that person, right? Hopefully. But the law can't stop you from hating them. It can't stop you from... from Gossiping about them, talking bad about them to other people. You see, that that's the problem with the law. The law can't make you righteous. The law can't give you life. And that means that the law is there for another reason. It must be there then to point beyond itself to the one who can make you righteous and can breathe life into your deadness. And that's exactly the argument Paul's making in Galatians 3. Look closely at verse 19. Paul says, he asks, why then the law? In other words, if righteousness and life don't come through the law, then why do we need it? Why is it there? Why did God give it to us in the first place? And Paul's answer is just this, that the law was meant to lead you to a person. That all of the Old Testament stories and the story of the Old Testament in general is meant to lead you to a single person. Look at verse 16. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is the Christ. And so the law is there to lead us to Jesus. It's there to help us to see Jesus. And that's our third point. So he's the person that comes in the fulfillment of the law. Now here's how the law works. Let's just finish by talking about this for just a couple of minutes. The law works in two ways. It exposes our need and then it reveals the Savior. The law, when it, when it really is working in your life, it exposes your need and then reveals the Savior. And that's how it leads us to Jesus. So let's just very quickly, first... The law exposes our need. In other words, the law was never meant by God to be a list of rules that you follow in order to achieve, quote-unquote, righteousness and merit God's acceptance and blessing. It's incredibly naive to think that in the first place. I mean, take, take just, let's just take one rule, okay, the most important rule, the one that God says everything else hinges on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. How are we doing on that one? You see, you can't make that into a checklist. You see that? The depth and the breadth of that one command is staggering because it goes right into the core of your being and questions not only your actions, but your motivations and your goals and your desires and your intents. Okay? So maybe, maybe, that's, just, maybe that's just one example and not a very good one. So let's think of another one. How about commandment number one? 
Have no other gods before me. Seriously? I mean, that thing, that, that is aimed specifically at what it, where our hearts are the most diseased. I mean, you can't possibly use the law to feel good about yourself or to feel, feel superior to others unless you destroy the law in the process. Because it won't let you, right? So, okay, maybe your kids are respectful and well-behaved and they get good grades in school and you feel pretty good about that. But what happens is typically that makes them arrogant and condescending. Dang. You know, no matter where I turn, the law hems me in. It doesn't let me get away with those things, and I can't possibly use it to make myself feel good about myself or superior to others without destroying it. And that's exactly what Paul means in Galatians 3.23 when he says that the law is there to imprison us. You see that? It's a great metaphor. He says the law is meant to lock you up until you see there's no way out, there's no escaping its demands. And you begin to despair of yourself and begin to look somewhere else for help. And that's when the law is really doing its work in your life is when you feel so in prison, when your conscience is so overwhelmed with guilt and you see the depth of your sin and you see there's no way out and you have no hope unless somebody comes to save and you finally you throw up your hands and you say, I quit. I can't do it. Jesus, save me. And it's that continual process of repentance, of turning away from trying to make ourselves righteous on our own and turning to Christ in faith. The law leads us into this process of continual repentance and faith. And that's exactly what Paul means when he says that we're justified by faith instead of by law. Faith means you don't do it. Somebody else does. That the righteousness that justifies you is not your righteousness. It's not your record. It's not your spiritual resume. So you see, the law exposes our need so that it can reveal to us the Savior. The law shows you your righteous, shows you righteousness in order to reveal to you your sin. But the law also shows you righteousness so you can know what it is when you see it in the one who was promised in the law. The Christ who would come to fulfill the demands of the law. And that's exactly what he's done. And so, just to finish, you see it's Jesus' record of righteousness. It's his spiritual resume that leads to our justification. Jesus did love God with all, with all of his heart. And all of his soul. And all of his strength. He never had, he never put other gods before the Lord. He is the complete and perfect fulfillment of the law. And what Paul's saying is the law ends with him. And therefore we're no longer under it. We've been freed from the prison. Now that's the good news we celebrate. He came born under the law to redeem those under the law. We've been redeemed. He's paid the penalty to bring us out from under the law. You see, we deserve death and hell because of our disobedience. And the law demands a blood sacrifice to atone for our sin. That's why they sacrificed the animals in the Old Testament. And instead of demanding our blood, Jesus spilled his own blood. And so there are no more sacrifices because, as Hebrews said, Jesus died as a sacrifice for sin once and for all. Amen. Fulfilling all the types and examples contained in the sacrificial system. You see, every lamb, every goat, every bull that was ever slaughtered as a sin offering whispered his name. But not only that, he was the perfect embodiment of the righteousness of the law. The exacting demands and rules, the vestments of the priests, the rites and rituals of cleansing and purity, all of those whispered his name as well. The law ends with him. Now, so don't make the mistake of legalism. But don't swing to the other side either. And let me just finish with this one thought. When you, unite, when you unite yourself to him by faith, when Jesus comes into your life and you unite yourself to him, he not only declares you righteous in God's sight because of his record of righteousness, but what Jonathan alluded to before and what we have to finish this sermon by saying 
is he not only declares you righteous, he also begins the work of remaking you by the Spirit. The teaching of the Bible is that Jesus not only fulfills the law for us, but by the power of the Spirit, he's fulfilling the law in us. He's changing our hearts. He's conforming us to his image. He's remaking us in his likeness. The gospel doesn't make obedience irrelevant. It makes obedience possible. The gospel is the power of God for obedience, the obedience of faith. Not obedience for the sake of gaining a record that will earn me God's acceptance. No, the obedience that comes out of the love that I have for God. Because when I finally look and I see the child born in Bethlehem on Christmas Day and the cross on which my Savior bled and died for my sins, the gospel, you know, the consideration of that takes me back to the law, but not under it. We go back to the law because we realize the law is there to show us how to love him and how to love one another. And that's what we want to do more than anything else in the world. If your heart's been softened by the gospel of grace. And that's the value for us. And so the gospel is, I can't believe Jonathan said it because it was in my notes. The gospel is just this as we consider these things. The gospel and the way that we relate to the law in it is this. I do nothing. I do nothing. It's all grace. Jesus' record for my sake. I do nothing, but I gain everything. And when I see that, man, I'll do anything. Oh, how I delight in your law. It's my meditation day and night. I pant for it. I'd love for you to tell me what to do. Because I trust you and I love you and I know your heart for me. And I know you're trying to lead me to the ways of life. I do nothing. I gain everything. I do anything. That's the kind of people he's trying to make us into. And that's what Christmas is about. So let us pray together this morning and ask him to come and just do that. As the worship team comes to lead us in a song. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we say thank you that where we were powerless and enslaved and imprisoned by the demands of the law that you have come to rescue us. And I, and I have felt the chains and the iron bars around my life and the guilt and the, and the, the sadness and the despair of knowing the way I want to live and, and yet not having the power and the resources within myself to bring it about. And so I'm so grateful, Jesus, that where I am guilty, where we have been, where we are declared guilty and we deserve hell forever, you have come and put yourself and stepped into our place and shed your own blood in the place of ours. And not only that, but that you lived a perfect, a life of perfect righteousness so that if we put our faith in you, we can not only have our sins placed upon you, but we can gain your righteousness as well. And now you've ascended to the Father. And from heaven you've sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You've sent the Spirit to remake us. And so we ask that you continue to do that by the power of your gospel. That we might be people who love you. And who love one another. And that our love for you and our love for one another might testify to the truth. Of the things we celebrate at Christmas. So that the world might come, might come to know and celebrate with us. That's our hope. That you would be made famous. And so make us a people holy, a kingdom of priests who love your law and delight in it, that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing with us if you would, please. The tenderness of that song, uh, because it captures kind of the tenderness of the, of the atmosphere of Christmas and the little baby in the manger, but don't mistake uh, that baby as being, he is the king of the universe who's come into the world to set up a kingdom. And for you to dare to, bring, to ask him to come into your life, you're inviting the king of the universe into your life, and he will come to subdue and to conquer you. But, no, but, but, but please, 
check your heart because the first thing our heart says when we say that, he's not coming to crush you. He was crushed. He's not coming to make you miserable. He was a man of sorrow so that you could find infinite joy. And so even as he comes and, and the law of God comes with all of its authority into your life and he comes to subdue you, here in the promise of this benediction that he does that all, all of that because uh, he's for you and he loves you infinitely. And that's the promise of the benediction. Uh, and so receive it as people, uh, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests who belong to him, who he is redeemed by his mighty hand and who he is calling uh, into exclusive relationship with himself. So receive the benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.